I've entitled this uh, sermon, uh, What is True Religion? And I'm bringing together two scriptures. And I don't mean the, the two scriptures to simply be a problem. I think there is that aspect. And the two are from James 1, 19 to 27 and Galatians 2, 21. Uh, I think that we read these two scriptures and we may have a problem, but I also want to add a positive element. That is, I think we need to read these two scriptures in conjunction with one another. But let's start with the James uh, 1.19 to 27 passage. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of livery, and abides in it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, This man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. James is going to go through and define true religion. This is one of the places and one of the tests of true religion. And so uh, the idea that we are to be doers, where faith without works, he says, is dead. Uh, That those who cannot hear the oppressed, they, in fact, are not the children of God, that God hears the oppressed. So he'll give us several tests. But I want to contrast this, but also build up with this on Galatians 2, 21. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus... Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. And then let me, this down in 2.21 of Galatians. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Now, there may be an apparent, I think, on the surface contradiction here that is, in fact, no contradiction. Paul is talking about works of the law, and James is talking about ethics, doing things. Um, The gospel can be and has been misunderstood in the characteristic misunderstanding, I think, that we have both in Galatians by Paul and James. James is dealing with a situation very similar to that in, I think, the American church today, in American evangelicalism, but even in the Christian churches, churches of Christ. The ethics of Christ are not joined to the faith of Christ. This is what James is dealing with. You you imagine that there is faith apart from 
living the life of Christ, following Jesus, so that faith is a kind of empty category. I think for many Christians today, faith, grace, these, these terms lose their meaning because they're, they're not tied to the life and walk of Christ. The other mistake is that which Paul deals with in the case of the Jews. Paul is not condemning doing good, doing good works. He's condemning those who imagine the works of the law are a necessary part of the gospel. And he has very specific works. He's already talked about this in Galatians. He says that when Peter came down, he refused to eat with the Gentiles Uh, Because the food would be unclean. And Paul condemns that. He says that we are no longer keepers of the works of the law. And so he means circumcision. He means the food laws. He means the Sabbath laws. These markers of what it means to be an ethnic Jew, being a Jew, is no longer what saves you. And so Paul confronts Peter for imagining that keeping the law in this sense is what saves you. Now, we have an error in a kind of Lutheran-Protestant reading of Paul that imagines that Paul pits the law against grace and we're presumed to pit the Old Testament against the New, Israel against the Church. So Luther, Calvin, and I think evangelicalism Uh, I think that Thomas Campbell, I think that Alexander Campbell, the uh, pioneers of the Christian church, fell into this error in which they would imagine that salvation occurs apart from works. Now, we happen to have a, a kind of peculiar problem in the Christian church because we've also emphasized the sorts of things that Paul is dealing with in Galatians. Um, but, you know, the idea that in evangelicalism or Luther that doing works was confused with doing the works of the law. Uh, as a result, evangelicalism has disassociated salvation from the kingdom of God, from the church. So you go to somebody like Dwight L. Moody... Uh, Moody's biography said Dwight L. Moody did not have a theology of the church uh, that most evangelicals do not connect salvation with the church now there is a part of Luther there is a part of the Reformation we do not want to lose Luther realized we are saved by God's grace and not by some sort of legalistic works and so Luther In a uh, a way, Luther faces the problem with the Catholic Church that Paul faced with the Jews. The Jews imagined that the ethnic markers of Judaism, food, law, circumcision, Sabbath keeping, these things save you. And those things which marked them out as Jews were confused with the fact that God is the one who saves life and salvation are not found in the works of the law or in these ethnic markers. And so in the Catholic Church of Luther's day, and I fear in the Christian church, in churches of Christ in our day, we sometimes imagine that salvation is in keeping commands like baptism, the Lord's Supper, 
or in you know being a, a member on the role of the church. And I don't in any way mean to diminish these things, uh, but I do not think we are wrong, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, to imagine that orthodoxy, if you're an orthodox Christian, does that save you? James says the demons in hell believe that God is one. That's good. But of course, they fear and tremble. So believing is not enough. That is, orthodoxy is not enough. Keeping the commands of God in the sense of the Jews is not enough. And I don't think here that we're wrong in imagining that being saved is part of being the true church. James is clearly, though, dealing with those who are part of the true church, yet they're in danger of equating their salvation with just their orthodoxy. And these folks, maybe we too, imagine that being orthodox, you know, being a good uh, evangelical, whatever you're, you know, everybody thinks they're orthodox, uh, that we imagine that will preserve us from complicity in evil. And James messages faith alone, orthodoxy alone, will not offer any protection uh, against complicity in evil. And James is describing systemic evil in which he will equate it directly with the rich, with those who dispossess others. And if you read a little bit of history, it's nearly a universal uh, fact that collusion with evil. And I think there's always exceptions with any, you know, by what is evil. Well, I think that the American system of slavery, I think that uh, anti-Semitism in Nazi Germany, I think that there are many forms of political evil, uh, that... Churches have colluded in all of these things. Christian churches colluded, uh, Church of Christ colluded in systemic problems of racism, uh, of enslaving other people. So membership in a particular church will not save you, will not preserve you from complicity in evil. And in fact, I mean, that's why James is writing. That's why we have the New Testament. They're writing to people who are members of the church and saying, but be careful. And so church history teaches us that, uh, you know, that our orthodoxy is not necessarily saving us from complicity and evil. So when we ask what is true religion, how do we know that we're not the devil ourselves? How do we know that we ourselves are not guilty of doing evil? And so there are several tests which the New Testament provides to judge true religion, to judge ourselves. And James describes one of them. You must be a doer of the word. A religion that does not provide for widows and orphans and the poor, he says that's not true religion. You can get the orthodox elements right. You can get the faith right. But if it does not involve these ethical actions, it's not Christianity, he's saying. A religion, and this is Alexander Campbell, he says a religion which creates widows and orphans and which impoverishes, kills, excludes, and oppresses 
James says in 1.19, that is by extension impure, defiled religion. And he's acknowledging that there is this thing, there can be a defiled, impure kind of Christianity. One who denigrates the impoverished, one who joins the oppressor. He says, that's not, you're not a follower of Jesus. The Christian loves his neighbor, who, and both James and uh, Jesus describe the neighbor. You know, think of here the, the, the uh, good Samaritan, the, uh, the one that's on the side of the road, that uh, they're always the oppressed, they're always the poor. And so they're the one of the poor impressed, by definition, are the neighbor. And so in his various tests of true religion, James provides, I think, the one key marker that we can uh, for distinguishing Christianity from pure evil. And that is the capacity. Do you have the capacity to hear the oppressed and do something about it? Uh, he's going to say that this is a capacity that God has and that the evil do not have. They cannot hear the oppressed. They're deaf. And when you've gone deaf, by definition, you stand over and against God. I just came back from uh, the Stone Campbell Conference and I met Richard Hughes, a, uh, uh, just a, a prince of a guy. And he did a paper then on white supremacy. So this is kind of on my mind here. And he describes then a supremacy which extends into the present from the past. You know, he describes, he's thinking here, of somebody like Frederick Douglass, who was a, a, a black Christian who had been a slave. He would become a U.S. ambassador to Haiti and was, uh, you know, a, a, a man who was a strong spokesman for abolition of slavery. And Douglas says there is a difference so wide between the Christianity of Christ and the Christianity of this land. He says, quote, that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. Clearly, by James' standard of measurement, hearing the oppressed, helping the widows and the orphans, uh, systematically making widows and orphans through tearing families apart, you know, as American slavery did, does not seem to meet James' criteria for true religion. Now the white southerners, they had no ear to hear the oppressed. Churches of Christ in the south had no ear to hear the oppressed. Uh, James' promise is that God hears. You know, this is the whole picture of slavery. That I hear you in Egypt. I hear the cry of the oppressed. And I will deliver you. So what was absolutely clear to Douglas, a runaway slave, maybe it's a truth that, and, uh, that's obscured by our economics, you know, well, we need these slaves, or national religion, or uh, what amounted to, in the South, a way of life. 
The way that Douglas describes it, the slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land did not have the perspective to understand that it was an abomination. Isn't, he says, this is a quote, this the purest form of deceit, Douglas says. That is to call evil good in the name of Christ. And so, one of the things, you know, that uh, Hughes brings out is the conviction that the United States was a Christian nation, was a factor and is a factor in racial oppression. As there seemed to be something like an official sanction by the state, which becomes a religious sanction, for white supremacy. Uh, Richard cites the, the election, you know, recent election of this president, the problems in Charlotte, North Carolina, as a kind of living proof that white supremacy is alive and well. Not in spite of, but because of Christians, of evangelical Christians. I think one, something like 81% uh, were in favor of the present uh, administration. So he demonstrates that evangelicalism has been particularly prone to allowing the culture to shape the church. Now the strange thing is Christian churches, churches of Christ, have not historically counted ourselves as evangelical. But I think that through time we are kind of indistinguishable. The kind of, you know, one of the things in evangelicalism there is this kind of privatized, pietistic religion of going to heaven when you die. I've accepted Jesus in my heart. Uh, that gives rise to a disembodied form of faith, like James is writing against, which is choose recognition of works challenging real-world evil. Uh, that is, that salvation of the soul as a kind of disembodied it can be completely devoid of ethics. And so a faith that requires oppression, exclusion, uh, you know, this is Douglas' point. Isn't this the climax, to call this Christian, the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels? Isn't this precisely the false religion which James warns us about, that should not be confused with authentic forms of the faith. This sort of religion, James says, makes distinctions among people. It says to the poor man, the foreigner, the person of color, you stand over there. I'm just quoting James here, James 2.3. You stand over there or sit down by my footstool. In dishonoring the poor man and favoring the rich, James says, you've dishonored Christ. And James seems to know of only one form of wealth, ill-gotten gain obtained by oppressing the poor. The cry of which passes, you know, the, the poor, the oppressed, that it falls upon deaf ears uh, of the rich and that God hears. If you cannot hear the pre- oppressed, James says in 5.5, in five, He describes one like this as he has fattened his heart in a day of slaughter. 
That is, he's grown rich, he's fattened his heart off the slaughter of his fellow human beings. The religion which Douglas condemns, I think, is the unjust religion which James condemns. And I think we have to be able to recognize this in the contemporary forms of faith that surround us or that we might ourselves be complicit in. You know, Christian complicity in systemic evil, slavery, national socialism, white supremacy, bigotry, oppression of women, minorities, maybe just abuse of people, abuse due to, you know, children, of women, of people of color, of foreigners. Uh, James will, you know, he says, the worker who is denied his wages. That, if you do that, if you're guilty of doing that, you're practicing false religion, he says. He says this is a clear sign of a religion that has gone deaf. That is one that does not hear the voice of the oppressed. And the danger of evil, and of what we're describing here, of an evil religion, that is not just a religion that does not prevent evil, but a religion that is complicit, that is a justification for doing evil, that that religion will serve to drown out the oppressed and become then part of the voice of the oppressors. All in the name of Christ. And this is the great abomination that both Douglas and James describes. Now maybe Alexander Campbell's, you know, part of our problem, he had a kind of rationalistic approach to scripture. He uh, had the tendency to simply focus on the rational. He believed that the Bible was simply a a propositional filled with facts that we need to get the form of the church right and then we could get salvation right. And so Campbell, and I think in our history, we have not asked about the poor, the marginalized, because we focused on a rationalistic kind of plan of salvation, which did not seem to include resistance to the imperial powers at least in Campbell's strain of the religion. If you go to Martin W. Stone, he, in fact, was very much out of a kind of Anabaptist tradition in which there was a clear voice uh, that the church should be a unique culture and have a unique ethic. Uh, But the the Campbell's notion that the Christian age, the church, begins in chapter 2 of Acts means that the ethics of Jesus is cut off from the Christian age. Uh, That Israel is cut off as the embodiment, you know, the church is not a kind of on a continuum with Israel. And so some in our churches concluded they had succeeded in restoring the New Testament and that salvation depended, depended on belonging to this one true church. You know, this is, uh, I've attended both churches of Christ and Christian churches in my life, and I've known many people that thought if you're not a member of this church, well, you're, you're simply not a Christian. I think that that's an obscuring of the central themes of the, the biblical message. This was the problem, you know, in the 1960s, that when we grew up, people didn't recognize somebody like Martin Luther King Jr. was uh, a prophet that someone sent here is one who's speaking for the oppressed why is it that many people could not hear what he had to say because of their religion had prepared them it had deafened them 
Let me make a statement here. I think that the evil done in spite of the Christian faith, that is, against the conscience, that's one thing. It pales in comparison, though, to the evil done on behalf of the faith, in good conscience. That's what James is warning us about. Christian complicity in systemic evil, slavery, national socialism, bigotry, oppression of minorities, the abuse of, of you know, the powerless, uh, that, is the, that is a worse problem. That is, we imagine that we're orthodox, we imagine that we're saved, and uh, we're uh, a part of the problem. And so the question here, that's the, the question is, how, how can we ourselves be preserved from being evil ourselves? And the question is, can we hear the voice of the oppressed? Can we hear those who who uh, the victim, the harass, the, the, the one who, you know, uh, is calling out to us. And so the instinct to silence the aggrieved, isn't that the very evil that put Christ on the cross? Think here, he's arrested at night. He's arrested, he's tried illegally. Frederick Douglass says, I'm filled with unutterable loathing when I contemplate the religious pomp and show together with the horrible inconsistencies which surround me. So to paraphrase Douglas, we still have vile oppressors for women ministers, women denigrators for religious professors. Douglas says, the man who wields the blood-clotted whip during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. The man, he says, who has robbed me and my family of my earnings meets me as a class leader on Sunday morning to show me the way of life and the path of salvation. James warns us, however, that the enrichment of some at the expense of others, he says, quote, will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. James 5.3 And so... I think that what Jesus is describing, what James is describing, you know, Jesus talks about the one who loves the, the uppermost rooms in the feast, the chief seats of the, the, in the synagogues, to be called teacher, teacher by men. But of course, this sort of pharisaical Christian, this sort of hypocritical Christian, Jesus says is like the Pharisees who would clean the outside of the cup and the platter but within is full, he says, of extortion and excess. Um, dead men's bones are inside. Uncleanness is inside. Uh, a kind of living death is what Jesus describes. Uh, this is not religion. This is, Jesus says, a sepulcher. This is a tomb. Let me, to just kind of complete the story of Frederick Douglass. He eventually, you know, he escapes slavery and he goes to England and uh, the British Isles. And he says when he got to the British Isles that he experienced an absence, a perfect absence of everything like that disgusting hate with which we are pursued in America. And now Douglas returns, he comes back out of a sense to his fellow African Americans, 
And he speaks and writes. He describes the great fear he had when he first gets up to tell the story. Um, Yet the voice of this former slave became key in recognizing the abomination of Christian slavery. What an oxymoron. Maybe when young black brothers and sisters find that kind of relief, that kind of comfort in our churches, what Douglas describes the perfect absence of hate, then we can claim to have heard the oppressed. There is a very simple resolution, and of course it's provided by God in the gospel of grace, that I think is there, the love of the kingdom. We know the love by this, that he laid down his life for us, And we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has this world's good and sees a brother and sister in need and refuses help? Little children, this is from 1 John 3, 16 to 18. Little children, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. That is just the New Testament, the message of the New Testament. We have the gospel of grace. The New Testament offers Christians another vantage point from which we can hear the oppressed. We can resist the dominant culture. Matthew describes this as the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus, he says, went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And the thing that always goes with the kingdom in the New Testament, curing diseases, every sickness among the people, healing the the sick, and relieving the oppression of the poor. Matthew's phrase, the gospel of the kingdom, resonates throughout the gospels. The kingdom of God, I believe, is certainly, you know, the church, if not parallel or equated with that kingdom here is the advent of that kingdom Uh, kingdom of God is closely linked to it's always linked I think to the poor the dispossessed those in prison the maimed the lame the blind all those who suffer at the hands of the world's elites those are the ones who enter into this kingdom In other words, the kingdom of God is where the powerless are empowered, where the hungry are fed, where the sick are healed, where the poor are sustained, and where those who find themselves marginalized by the rulers of this world are finally offered equality and justice. So the gospel of the kingdom is the gospel of grace. We need the good news of the grace of God connected, though, to this embodied kingdom. And I think that's what these two passages bring us, bring together. Uh, We know, John says, the love by this that he laid down for his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for one another. We are doers of the word. And so the gospel message has these two components radical self-giving love and grace given to each of us you know so what is maybe that's the same thing we have the grace of God and we extend that grace to others
So we need to line up James and Paul here. As James tells us that we need to do good works, and Paul tells us it's not enough to equate those works with the markers of orthodoxy. I think our churches have the two problems. True faith, true grace, cannot separate out the ethics of faith and the ethics of Christ from membership in the church. Jews imagined being Jews was enough. And when Christians imagine being Orthodox Christians is enough and do not align this Orthodox faith with the ethics of Christ, then they've fallen into the error of James. So we must turn to the aggrieved, the slave, the abused, the victims, just as we turn to the crucified Christ for the truth. Can you hear the voice of the crucified one? Can you hear the voice of Jesus? The sign that we have learned the way of the cross is that we hear the voices of the crucified. The sign of the Antichrist, on the other hand, is to imagine that the crucified are permanently silenced. The oppressor imagines that the impoverished, the slave, the outcast, the very one that he has impoverished, enslaved, and cast out, is silenced by this fact. James promises the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. That's great comfort for for, for those who are oppressed. To hear as God hears ensures we have not gone deaf on oppressive religion. Let's sing our hymn.